Hello, I'm Ken Hirsch, President and CEO of the George W. Bush Presidential Center, home to the George W. Bush Presidential Museum and our results-oriented policy arm, the George W. Bush Institute. Recently, the Bush Center held its sixth annual Forum on Leadership, a landmark event that develops, recognizes, and celebrates leadership by bringing together notable voices for in-depth discussions on today's pressing issues. The 2023 Forum on Leadership was entitled Answering the Call, and we explored how our nation is looking to the next generation to lead with optimism during a time of challenge. What is the future of American capitalism? Bill Haslam, former governor of Tennessee and the Salmons Enterprise Fellow at the Bush Institute, Larry Summers, President Emeritus at Harvard University and former U.S. Treasury Secretary, McKesson Corporation's CEO, Brian Tyler, and our own Mary Moore Hamrick, the Don Evans Family Managing Director of Domestic Policy at the Bush Center, explored what's next for our economy. That's up next on Overheard at the Bush Center. Good morning. For years, American capitalism has thrived on freedoms. Freedoms of markets, of choice, freedom to start a business, as well as the freedom to fail. The Main Street entrepreneur, and more recently the Silicon Valley titan, though, have experienced what we used to say on ABC's wide world of sports, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. With the recent market turmoil, Americans are wondering about their bank accounts and their 401ks. They're putting their starter home on hold because interest rates are too high. And entrepreneurs can't get that bank loan to start a new business, unless they go to Bank of America. <laughs> uh, government actions are creating economic uncertainty and wreaking havoc on the American dream. American capitalism has flourished because of business competition and the belief that markets would allocate, high, uh, allocate capital to its highest and best use. But lately, the government has moved beyond providing a fair and predictable framework for capitalism. On the one hand, we've seen massive government stimulus with trillions in pandemic spending and infrastructure investments. But on the other hand, our government debt is greater than our GDP. And it just feels like to me that we're putting one foot on the gas and one foot on the pedal at the same time with Washington putting American capitalism into a tailspin. The size and efficiency and indebtedness of the US government really risks to become a threat to the future of capitalism. Inflation is shutting down housing and commercial lending. Bank capital requirements are inhibiting the bond markets. Environmental regulations are stymieing affordable energy and driving up the cost of doing business. But today, our expert panel will address the future of American capitalism. We're going to explore what that means for us both domestically and globally. On the global stage, China has declared economic war on America, creating its own brand of state-sponsored capitalism. They're taking the best of America's capitalism by bringing common prosperity and joint ownership with the private sector. They're making targeted government-directed investments in innovative technology. The CCP model centralizes power, removing the market inefficiencies of competition, labor regulation, and multiple choices. But we in America can win this war. 
We must unleash innovation and foster cooperation and competition. And we need to combine that smart government policy with business ingenuity to guarantee the future of the American dream. And that's what our work here at the George W. Bush Institute is all about. We believe in private markets, humanized by compassionate government. Our policy work is focused on ensuring opportunity for all by promoting economic growth and education accountability, by supporting immigrant entrepreneurship and ensuring that veterans and their families successfully transition to civilian life. To that end, we're providing state education leaders with tools and resources to address the learning loss and lack of readiness that was exacerbated by the pandemic. We're focused on research-based teaching and strong assessment systems to deliver on our promise to educate our young people. Our Blueprint for Opportunity program is researching the best practices behind creating prosperous cities and towns as a means of expanding opportunity in America. And we're looking at those ecosystem synergies between our research-based universities and medical institutions. We're developing a modernized immigration policy focused on skills and education to accelerate economic growth while seeking lasting solutions to our border policy and the Western Hemisphere refugee crisis. For veterans and their families, we're focused on state-based efforts to mitigate the onerous licensing and credentialing barriers when transitioning to civilian life or assigned to new base. And I've got to give a shout out to Governor Yunkin for his recent bill. We have three experts here today to sort through these challenges. Former Treasury Secretary and Harvard President Emeritus Larry Summers, former Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam, and Brian Tyler, an economist and CEO of McKesson, who recently moved his Fortune 10 company from San Francisco to here in nearby Irving, Texas. Let's welcome Larry Summers, Governor Bill Haslam, and Brian Tyler to the stage. Well, we certainly know that the debt ceiling and the deficit and inflation are top of mind. Debt's greater than GDP. We've got, we've, we're going to hit our debt ceiling sometime this summer. How does this threaten the future of growth and prosperity? Should we be concerned about the future of capitalism? Secretary Summers, tell us what you see on this front. Look, we're going to worry a lot about a lot of things. But the first thing to say is that I would rather be playing the hand of the United States than playing the hand of any other major country uh, in uh, the world. And, this <laughs> and the second thing to say is that the great theme in American history is our capacity for self-denying prophecy. We get ourselves alarmed about all sorts of things and that's what creates the momentum and the pressure that causes us to solve uh, the problems. And so I'm going to doom and gloom, and I suspect we all are about a bunch of things. But basically, I'd much rather live in the future than in the past. And I'd much rather live in the United States than live any other place. That said, we got to get through this uh, debt limit thing. Look. Um, I got three kids and three stepkids. Sometimes they spend more money than I think they should. And then we have a fight in our family. 
Should they pay? Am I going to pay? How are we going to deal with it? But one option we do not consider is that we do not pay the visa bill. <laughs> it's just not on the table as a possibility. And that needs to be the attitude the United States has with respect to the debt limit. And we just need uh, to get past this. Beyond, the, beyond, uh, beyond that, yes, we are going to have to make adjustments in our revenue base. We're going to have to make adjustments ultimately in uh, some of the expenditure trends. I think people are underestimating the problem. The CBO says that uh, the interest rate on the 10-year bond over the next seven years is going to average 2.8%. Maybe that will happen, but that wouldn't be my planning assumption if I was running uh, a business. The current forecasts are that national security and defense expenditures are going to be about constant as a share of GDP. I look at all the threats in the world, and I don't think that's going to happen uh, either. So we are going to have to make uh, a set of uh, adjustments, but we've done that before, and we will have to do it again. I don't think that's our only deficit, though. If you ask me deep down, if things go wrong in America, is it because of the deficit represented by the fact that Nick talks about that fewer American men are working as a share of the population than any other place? Is it about an infrastructure uh, deficit? Is it about a basic life and health, expect health, ex health and life expectancy uh, deficit? Those are hugely important uh, deficits, too, that we need to focus on. But yeah, we've got to figure out how to address these things for the medium term. And it sure can look awfully frustrating looking at a lot of the things that happen in Washington. But if you step back from it all, I think we've got stunning opportunity in this country. I love that optimism. Governor Haslam, what do you see from your perspective from the states? It, it, how would you look at this? You know, um, it's interesting when, and in as a governor, whenever you run for re-election, no matter who you are, you always say, and I, ba uh, I balance a budget for four consecutive years, uh, conveniently ignoring that you have to do that. Um, and, but I'll say this, from the state standpoint, most states sailed through COVID with sales tax revenues not only intact, but higher than anticipated. I got a ridiculous amount of federal funds where, so most states are actually swimming in money exactly. right now. I mean, usually every year for our recurring budget, we had about 500 million in new funds, so to speak, more revenue this year than last year, okay? Um, now they have three or four times that. And the same thing with capital funds or, or, or one-time money. Um, states are, are really in that just almost enviable position of being able to decide what they do. The concern for me, and I, I appreciate Larry's optimism, the concern for me is for the first time, it feels like nobody cares about the, the deficit. I mean, traditionally, Republicans have said kind of three things. We believe in a market economy. We think that it should budget the balance. We believe the United States should be a strong international presence. And really only 
one of those threes feels like it's still true. So my concern is we end up like France is right now where everybody's going on strike because they're raising the retirement age from 62 to 64, which is just really a big math problem. And my concern is that I love the optimism, but nobody is saying we, we have our own math problem. We definitely do. How does the math play out for you, doctor? Well, I heard in my introduction I was introduced as an economist, which is true, but I haven't practiced for over 30 years. So let's, let's put on my business, uh, my business lens. And, uh, you know, from a business perspective, you know, an executive has got a couple primary responsibilities, right? The strategy for the corporation, the talent, and how to deploy capital. And that's where I think these issues come into play. I mean, when we're having debt ceiling debates and we're looking at, you know, the macro level of debt that we have in the country and what the ramifications for that for fiscal or monetary policy is, there's a lot of unknowns. That introduces a lot of uncertainty. When there's uncertainty in your business planning, you try to tend to pull back. And when you pull back, that means economy slow and job creation slows and innovation slows. And so, you know, ad, we are always advocating for a fiscal and monetary policy discussion that's rational, pragmatic, looking forward and provides some stability so that companies can make investments to innovate, grow jobs, train workforces and succeed into the future. Well, let's move on to China. Uh, I thought it was very timely this morning. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Janet Yellen is um, going to say that the Biden administration will prioritize national security over the economy and our relations going, for, going forward. What, um, how do we balance our U.S. business leaders' desire to trade with and invest in China, which is really the world's biggest market, with our intelligent leaders testifying before Congress that China remains the most consequential threat to our national security from both a military and economic perspective? How do we, how do we, how, how do we handle that, gentlemen? Careful. You're the only one that's been a cabinet secretary. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. Uh, carefully and uh, strategically. Look, I don't think any of us can suppose that China looks the same way that it did 15 years ago or 25 years ago. And we have got to be more concerned about a lot of things that China is uh, doing. And have to adjust a set of uh, policies. But there's a phrase in uh, the export control biz that I think is a pretty good phrase and applies to some of these things more broadly, which is small garden, high wall. And what that's saying is we got to protect the most sensitive national security stuff and we've really got to protect it and do everything we can to make sure that the stuff that's most sensitive isn't uh, leaking over there, whether it's in trade or foreign investment or some business of theirs uh, here. But that is a very different thing than saying we've got to beat them down and make sure they don't prosper. And if it slips into, we're gonna beat them down and make sure they don't prosper, that might feel good in the short run, but we're not gonna want the storm uh, that uh, that's uh, going to uh, produce. 
And we have got to think about both deterrence and reassurance. And we've got to push them to think about both deterrence and uh, reassurance. And above all, and this is a message for both sides, uh, you know, I saw when I was working with uh, for President uh, Clinton and uh, Yitzhak Rabin famously, but with a certain reluctance, shook Yasser Arafat's hands. And somebody said, how could you shake his hand? And Rabin said, you don't make peace with your friends. <laughs> and there was a lesson there. And we have to, on both sides, keep uh, the communication uh, channel open. I don't remember it exactly. Uh, and the interesting thing is that I suspect most people in this room don't remember it. But uh, at the beginning of uh, several months in to President Bush's administration, there was an incident where one of our planes crashed into one of their planes in the air and in some space that they thought was their territory and we thought was international waters and our plane went down and our pilots got uh, rescued and there was communication back and forth and we wrote a carefully crafted letter that some people thought was an apology and other people very clearly thought was not an apology. And that was diplomacy and that incident worked itself out and it I'm sure was extremely tense and exciting for those involved, but ultimately we basically don't remember it now and that is success. What is scary is that if there was an equivalent thing right now, I'm not as certain that it could be carried on, both because I'm not sure the communication channels are as secure and as reliable as they were then, and because the domestic political pressure here in the United States to look tough would be so strong and the domestic political pressure there would be so strong that you'd have much more escalation risk. And that's the kind of lesson I think we need to learn from. Dr. Tyler, how is, are these China supply chain issues impacting you? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I like the way um, Secretary framed the strategic would be thoughtful, let's balance short and long term, because I do think we need to have a long term view on our trade policies. You know, help take my company, for example. We do not sell any goods or services in China, but we do source a lot of pharmaceutical and medical products from China into this country. And I think we have to acknowledge that China has some capabilities and some skills. I mean, they've been at scale manufacturing for decades. Uh, you know, their logistics is sophisticated. Eight of the top 10 seaports in the world are in China. Uh, if we are bringing a container of nitrile gloves in, we get it from China two to three weeks faster than we get it from Malaysia, oh. for example. That's real cash on the water. I mean, that really matters to business, and it's products for consumers. 
Um, you know, I think the trick when you come to supply chains that, that I think we've always realized, but probably heightened coming out of COVID, is that the real key is diversity. It, you know, even a fully domestic supply chain may feel good, on, on, you know, but if it's in Louisiana and Hurricane Katrina comes through, right. what kind of shape are you really in? So I think that the, you know, we need to take a pragmatic industry, industry by industry approach, right? I mean, pre-COVID, we might not have thought of uh, uh, healthcare as a national defense issue, mm -hmm. but facing down a pandemic, <clears throat> we may be more inclined to think that way now. So I think we've got to take an industry by industry, pragmatic, long-term view. I think trade with China will be important for many industries and for American consumers for a long time. Well, sort of building on that, uh, the topic of industrial policy has come up. Um, Washington's investing billions in chip manufacturing capabilities while, la while layering on social policies dealing with climate change, child care, and labor wages. Should we have industrial policies, and how do we make them most effective? Go ahead, Tom. I have a small thought, but you go ahead. No, you go ahead first, <laughs> Governor. I, I think we should have industrial policies. I think they should, I mean, like I said, in my mind, if that balance between being you know, government-driven and market-driven, you're never going to be pure, purely, even though I'm a market guy, purely market-driven. The CHIPS Act, in my, in my opinion, was a smart thing to do. I think we have to do things where we're significantly behind to act in those things. Mm -hmm. um, so should we have an industrial policy? Uh, you bet. Should we realize that um, most of the efficient decisions are going to be made by the market? Uh, that, that's where I would lean. Secretary Summers, you've commented on this before. I think I'm, I think I'm broadly uh, with uh, with Bill. Should we be thinking about what our capacities are? Thinking about whether we're resilient? Thinking about technological leadership in the areas where it's most important? Yeah, we should. But here's the problem, or here's the challenge where I worry we might go a little wrong. Um, the best generals are the ones that hate war the most. And they're the ones who know that sometimes you have to fight a war, but that's the last resort and it's not something you wanna do. And I think the best people doing industrial policy have that kind of reluctance about overriding market forces. And I think we got a lot of people who think, oh, it's fantastic. We're going to get to do a lot of industrial policy. The government's going to get to plan a lot of stuff. The government's going to get to subsidize a lot of stuff. The government's going to get to direct a lot of stuff. It's really going to be terrific. We can just do a ton of economic planning. And I think that is badly mistaken. Everyone who hears the words industrial policy for resilience should think about two things. We had a great policy for resilience, motivated exactly by resilience, that Congress passed in about 1925. It was called the Jones Act, <laughs> and it is the reason heating oil is 10% more expensive in New England. It is the reason we did not get stuff to Puerto Rico nearly as fast as we could after the hurricane. And it was there because somebody had the bright idea that we needed to make sure we were relying on American shipping for shipping. Probably an American shipping company. We, uh, probably, no, <laughs> like but it was also, yep, it was an American shipping company, but it was also a set of extremely well-intentioned public officials who didn't 
fully think through all the long-run consequences of what they're doing. If you ask why we have an infant, why did we have a big infant formula problem? Because we had a set of Buy America policies for infant formula that established supply chains that were only in uh, America. So, uh, yeah, we do, need, we do need to have them, but they need to be thought through carefully around minimal necessary strategic objectives, not broad things. One of the things I'm proud of, I'll say this and I'll stop. Uh, one of the things I'm proud of that I had a chance to do in uh, government is working with uh, President uh, Obama. I oversaw at the National Economic Council the team that executed on what we called the support program and everybody else called the bailout of uh, the bankrupt automobile companies. And one of the things we did at the very beginning was we established a set of principles for how we were going to operate. And the core principle was minimal necessary to return to solvency and get out of public hands. And we established those principles at the beginning. And then when the EPA wanted to turn these temporarily government-owned car companies into a sandbox for environmental experimentation, we said, excuse me, no, we we agreed on these principles in the interagency process that the president signed, uh, signed off on. When the Department of Labor wanted to have innovative experiments and the stuff that they cared about, we did, uh, the, we did the same thing, and I think that's, why, that's uh, why the companies were in and out of bankruptcy fast. That's why the companies are uh, viable uh, today, and we don't have a Jones Act-like tail. And I would like more of that sensibility to run through our country's industrial policy. Uh, strategies. That makes sense. We should we should just not lose sight of the fact, right, that the goal is global U.S. competitiveness, right? Yes. And so we need to take care. And I like the minimalist approach that uh, Larry just outlined, because you know tacking on restraints, uh, you know, takes away flexibility. It takes away maneuverability, and we operate in a very dynamic global economy. So, you know, we've got to balance. Let's not lose sight of the overall goal, which is global U.S competitiveness, job creation, invention of new industries, you know, positioning us for the future. And let's put as few constraints as we can around that to let that happen. Well, Dr. Uh, the only thing I'd add is we need to, for people, the elected officials who go to people like Brian and say, you know, you need to totally domestically source your product. And then on the other breath, scream about inflation. We need to show them you actually can't, you can't be for both of those things. Very true. Very true. Diverse, you know, the, the example I use when I want to just explain this to people is I say, suppose you were running an automobile plant, an automobile company, and you woke up one morning and you had the horrible thought that all your steering wheels were coming from one factory in some other country. What would you do? I think the first thing you would do is you would decide to have six plants in six different places to get your steering wheel. I think the second thing you would do is decide to have an inventory of 
500,000 steering wheels in some warehouse. And I think only a fairly distant third would be to start your own steering wheel factory, run out of your own company, even though you'd have some managers who would think it was a really exciting project for them (laughs) to take on building that third steering wheel factory. And I think that sensibility is what sort of needs to inform us on industrial policy. Well, talking about the managers, I'm I'm dying to ask Dr. Tyler about workforce participation and and competition coming out of COVID. Um, Productivity and innovation are critical components of a successful capitalistic system, but we're facing major labor shortages and employee demands to work from home. What are the lessons learned and how do we best manage a post-COVID workforce? I don't know how much time do we have. <laughs> well, um, I, I, the countdown monitor will get us some more. That, that's a big one. Let me take. Let me start with the work from home. Um, actually, you know, McKesson rolled out its first flexible work policy nine or ten months before anyone knew what COVID was. So we could see underneath in the workforce some desire for flexibility, and that made sense to us. So. You know, that said, in February of 2020, if you would have walked into my office and said, hey, Brian, I have a great idea. Let's send all of our workers home. I would have kicked you out immediately and thought you were crazy. Yet we did it and we did it quite successfully. Um, You know, for me personally, uh, I have an affiliation to the way I grew up and the informal mentorship that happens in when we're physically together and the and the training. And I think that I think a lot about keeping the culture of my company vibrant But the reality is, it's not my company. I work for uh, millions of shareholders. And so, you know, what we, we are still operating in a very flexible work environment, but what we do is we have a dashboard of health metrics for the company. How engaged are employees? What's our manager quality survey tell us about how good our managers are doing? Are our innovation, are we hitting our innovation goals and milestones? What are our customers telling us in our NPS scores? Certainly, what are our financial results? And as long as those health metrics for the organization are strong, you know, we'll be flexible in the way we work. And we're very transparent with, our, uh, with the members of Team McKesson that those are what we're watching. And if you can continue to deliver on that, we can continue to deliver more flexibility than, than we're accustomed to. But if those start to go off the rails, we'll probably have to retrench and rethink. So you know, and I know many businesses are struggling with this. You know, our sense is right now, as long as the business is healthy, it actually could be a source of some competitive advantage in recruiting and retaining employees to allow them more flexibility than you know, we have historically, let's just say that. Now look, we're, we've, we, you referenced we've just moved to Dallas. We've had great luck attracting talent in Dallas, um, but you know, we, watch, we watch turnover metrics like a hawk. Uh, the best thing you can do is retain your team. Um, the labor environment you know, has been incredibly difficult. Inflation, very challenging. A large part of my workforce, we would call frontline workers. These are the people we celebrated during COVID who showed up every day and physically moved products in the supply chain. They're hit most impactfully. And so you know, we have to respond by investing more into wages than we would have historically done. And then that in turn pressures a business to either find the productivity or to find a way to pass price through, which of course you could see is a bit of a virtuous cycle there. So, um, you know, labor has been a real pain point for, for business the last several years. And I think the statistics we just heard, you know, in the morning panel, uh, maybe not as encouraging as you would hope for. Well, let's build on that. Governor Haslam, let's talk about education. You heard Ann Wick share some of the 
uh, uh, survey data and lessons learned on, uh, we have less than 40% of our students who can read and do math at grade level. Um, how can capitalism and free markets provide economic prosperity for future Americans given these anemic education rates? And what do you recommend we do? You know, two, two things. First of all, obviously, shout out to the Bushes. The, you know, the whole No Child Left Behind really was not just about saying every kid everywhere can learn, but uh-huh. it was about raising the standards of what was proficient. So like in, in Tennessee, when I came into office, we were saying 70% of our kids were proficient at grade level. But oh, by the way, 70% of the students that attended community college needed remedial work when they got there. So obviously both those things weren't true. So what can we do? We can do two or three things. Um, I thought Senator Portman's point about Pell Grants in the first panel was right on target. Um, we're, we're not, people respond to incentives. <laughs> I was talking about businesses respond to incentives. People do too. And so we need to do that. One of the things you figure out once you leave office is, well, how connected things are that you control as governor. And so, okay, the higher ed system's under us. Um, The K-12 is under us as well. What we didn't do a good job is kind of doing what you do in business, connecting customers' needs to the product you sell. So we had businesses saying, or we weren't doing a good job of going to businesses saying, here's what we need in terms of skill set. And then we weren't reorienting our community colleges and technical schools to meet those very specific needs in their areas, which you can do. I mean, four-year schools, a little harder to turn that battleship, but community colleges and technical schools are very nimble. Uh, and so reorienting them is a doable deal, which we started working on. So, I mean, I think the answer to your question is three things. Number one, uh, with our K-12 students, we have to raise the standards. We have to way, have a way to assess progress uh, and then a way to reward teachers based on your students' progress. Then you have to take higher ed and tie um, higher ed into the customers they're serving. I, I realize higher ed has a human flourishing component as well, but tie those into the business they're serving in terms of what, what do we exactly need? Um, and Rob's stories about the underwater welder, like I could, I could anybody that's been in state government can fill, it, fill you up with those stories because they're true. Uh, and tie those in more tightly um, to, to the need. And I think that the, the last thing in this is we're, we're losing people all along the way. K-12, you know, higher ed, et cetera, people are just leaking out. So the, the truancy rate, sometimes ask your local school system what's the truancy rate, and it'll shock you. And so we have to have a system that doesn't have people dropping out of the education early because those are the same folks that Nick is talking about they are going to drop out of the workforce later. Secretary Summers, from your perspective at Harvard. Let me say a couple th- let me say a couple things. I didn't agree with President Bush on everything. But I think the best thing that he said about domestic policy was the phrase soft bigotry of low expectations. And I think that's been a pervasive cancer in American life for 20 years, and it goes beyond the contexts that he talked about it. I am embarrassed by the fact that at Harvard University, the average grade point average is 3.8, and 67% of the grades are A's. And Harvard is not atypical at all. That's normal in elite higher education. And if we are giving the same grade to the person who does average in a class of 200 
as we are to the person who gets the best, who does the best in a class of 200, we are not raising uh, the bar. And I think there's a very fundamental decision you have to make to think about education. And I think we make it wrong in America these days a lot. And that is we have to ask ourselves this question. Is your basic theory that self-esteem should come from achievement or that if you provide self-esteem, achievement will follow? Mm. And in so many places, we have the theory that if you provide social, safe, so if you provide um, self-esteem, achievement will follow. That's why, and I haven't looked at these statistics um, in the last several years, but there was a point a few years ago where if you looked at eighth grade math, if you asked kids from every country, do you feel like you're really good at math? Americans led the world in feeling good about their math ability. <laughs> you know what's coming next. <laughs> They weren't in the top 20 in actually solving math problems. And I think we really need uh, a set of adjustments uh, to raise uh, the bar for everyone in terms of what we are expecting in uh, what is going to be a much more competitive uh, world and a much more demanding world in terms of people developing focused and specific skills. Let me put a twist on this. We have a new thing in innovation called ChatGPT, artificial intelligence. Um, Innovation and technology have been drivers of growth. What is the impact that this technology is going to have on capitalism, and what are the opportunities as well as the threats? Here's my... Go ahead. Here's a guess of mine, and who knows anything. I think this is common for the cognitive class. I think this is common for all of us. If you ask, which is ChatGPT and all that stuff going to replace quicker. A doctor reading 20 test results and four different scans and making a a diagnosis or a nurse comforting a patient, it's going to replace what that doctor does before it replaces that nurse. If you ask, who's it going to replace faster? a smart guy who's good at math sitting in front of a terminal going long or going short and changing his, changing his position every 12 minutes, or a salesperson building a relationship between one firm and another. It's going to replace uh, the trader first and the salesman uh, second. So I think you're going to see a pretty substantial kind of realignment. And I think there's a real possibility that this is going to be heavily empowering 
of some parts of the society that haven't traditionally been so empowered. And it's going to raise a set of questions for a set of people who've thought of themselves as uh, the hot stuff in the society. And as my examples suggest, I think this could end up being uh, quite uh, equalizing Mm. if uh, we do it right and if uh, we uh, use it uh, right. I have, I mean, things like this have already happened. I, I have an absolutely fantastic assistant who's been with me for many years who does extraordinary things and takes on extraordinary responsibility managing all aspects of the things uh, that I do. But for some set of reasons, she has enormous difficulty spelling. That does not matter at all today because she runs everything through a spell checker. Well, you know, I, didn't even, I didn't even know for five years that she had a problem with spelling. <laughs> 15, 25 years ago, though, it would have been inconceivable that she right. could have had the job she right. has with me. That's an early example of how technology can be equalizing and compensating, not just threatening. And the task of everyone who cares about technology, I think, is to maximize those impacts. Well, in the earlier panel, when I found out I was no longer in the prime age working males, I was kind of bummed out. <laughs> but, but now it sounds like my job is going to get automated anyway, so maybe I, maybe I feel better. Oh, um, my God. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited and, and optimistic with, uh, I think, with all the caveats and cautions that, you know, we're all discovering, you know, really, we're going to have to build skills in inspecting the data because bad data in is bad decisions out. So I think there's going to have to be a lot of caution and, and care and concern. But on the other hand, you know, I think it's got a lot of opportunity to create value. I, I'll give you two examples and I'll come back to, to one that Larry mentioned, but with a different twist. You know, we've, we've used AI to develop and, and self-service HR function in our company. And over the last few months, we've trained it to do huh. 200 activities. Wow. So, you know, we used to frustrate our managers that they needed to know when so-and-so would be paid and how much would the paycheck be. And it was a call to a, a center and it took time. And now you can just call Amelia and instantly get the information for 200 common requests. That introduces speed and efficiency into the organization and lets our HR team work on more important things like developing and training and building the culture in the company. The other example I would give is uh, you look at the primary care market, physicians. I mean, there is a big mismatch. I mean, we are hundreds of thousands of physicians short uh, in the U.S. today. And then if you look at the demographic of the population aging and the demographic of the physicians we have retiring, it's a pretty big gap. Now, physicians spend a lot of time doing non-patient care work. I mean, looking at claims and transcribing notes and a lot of that could be automated. That could free up capacity for people to provide care. Now, we've got to figure out how to do it the right way. There's a big change management process that's going to go around that. So, and there clearly will be disruptions. Um, but you know, I think we're going to have to think about, as businesses, how we carefully harness this 
technology, thoughtfully inspect the data and the algorithms and make sure as managers we understand what's in there so that we can have confidence in what's coming out the backside. Uh, I, the predictive capacity, I think, really can be good. I mean, there's a lot of scary things, but I was talking with a guest last night who works with folks uh, with addictions, and she, she was saying, we've, we've learned some data about things that can give us metrics to say this person will might have a lot uh, chance to, to fall back. And I'm thinking, okay, with this, now we're going to have a lot, high, a lot higher percentage chance of identifying that person early and making certain they have better supports around them. Okay, we've got one minute. I'm going to ask a final question. What do you think is most important to secure the future of American capitalism? Uh, I'll go first. Elect the right people. <laughs> it, don't, I, my, 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 scare, my fear today is people are so frustrated by the political process that good people are bailing out. Don't do that. Elect the right people. Secretary Summers. You, it doesn't work when people love their country and hate its government. Hmm. And that means electing the right people, and that means getting government not just to be able to conceive great plans, but to execute effectively and to touch people's lives in ways that... Uh, give them uh, confidence. And if we can restore confidence that government can basically uh, do things, uh, John Kennedy uh, said that man's problems were made by man, it follows that they can be solved by man. And I guess today you'd say men and women, but I think it is a very true uh, statement and groups like this actually make me feel and people like the pe people who I'm with on this panel uh, make me feel like it's going to be really hard but we'll find ways. Dr. Tyler, final well, It's humbling to get to close this out. Um, I would certainly reinforce what I heard here. You know, I would just say you know, we've got to get back to a place where our institutions, our businesses, our governments respect each other and listen to each other and are comfortable having the difficult debates, but truly engage in that debate with, open, with an open mind and that you know, we all have to be prepared to make the trade-offs. It It doesn't need to be 100% right. Getting it 80% right probably works a lot better for all of us. Well, I think you'll all agree that we've had three excellent panelists here to address these issues today. Um, we're going to give them a round of applause and go to break. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. To watch the session or hear more from this year's forum, visit bushcenter.org slash forum on leadership. For more information on our economic growth work, visit bushcenter.org slash economic growth.